Hi, everyone. <laughs> Scripture reading today is in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read chapter 2 of Matthew, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means less among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I really like how Christmas fell on the calendar this year, in that it was flanked by worship. So on Christmas Eve, we got to usher in the holiday with singing and scripture reading. And this morning, we get to resume that chorus of praise and thanksgiving. And it's kind of a a perfect little sandwich there for Christmas. And when you think about it, the very first Christmas was similarly bookended with worship. The praise began... Outdoors, I'll, I'll have you note, just for, the, for interest's sake. And it began when uh, angels announced to uh, shepherds who were out in the field that a baby had been born in Bethlehem. And they ran, of course, and found the baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. He found the parents and the baby in a gazebo of sorts. Again, I'm just pointing out some of the basic facts. And Luke 2 tells us that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. It was a night of worship. And then on the other side of Christmas, we have more worship, this time in a warm house. Uh, The details are given to us in this passage that Nathan just read for us, Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And this is the story, of course, about the visit of the Magi. And this morning we're going to take the opportunity to look at this story in a little bit more detail. The timing, I think, is perfect because we are now technically after Christmas. Uh, Because if we we ever dared look at this passage before Christmas, there would be some Christians who would say, well, actually, uh, the wise men didn't arrive until later, sometime later. And uh, these are the same people that, that shame us at, uh, so that we remove our, the Magi from our nativity scenes. And Apparently, it's very important that our manger scenes be realistic. Okay? That, that was exactly how it looked that first Christmas, you know, with the, 
the cows and sheep just leaning in to get a better look, and Mary seated and Joseph standing perfectly like under the arch of the, of the building, uh, hay bales arranged just so. You better not have the magi there because that's not how it happened. In fairness, it does seem to be the case that the wise men arrived on the scene sometime later. Verse 11 refers to them arriving at a house and seeing the child. And these words are, you know, different from stable and baby. But it's weird that we can be such sticklers about some of those details and not others. For example, the text doesn't say that the star went ahead of them from the east all the way to Jerusalem. Neither does the text say that there were three wise men. We just assume this because there were three gifts. But what if a bunch of them went in together on, say, the gold, for example? Sometimes these guys are even referred to by name. Balthasar, Melchior, Gaspar, from Ethiopia, Persia, and India, respectively. But these, in, these are just inventions from later centuries. So it's weird uh, what we're sticklers about and what we just assume as being true. When you think about it, this whole episode with the wise men is shrouded in mystery. There's so much that we don't know, including where they're from. I remember being so confused on this point when I was a kid. We three kings of Orient are, we'd sing, but I had absolutely no clue where Orient R was. There's so much about these wise men that we don't know, but this morning I'd like for us to simply focus on what we do know. Let's focus on the parts that are abundantly clear. And the key word in this text is worship. Worship. It occurs at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the passage, which kind of ties it all together so that it's the theme throughout. The theme of the wise men is worship. So my family and I are headed, Lord willing, after the service to Canada to spend some time with our extended family up there. And as you can imagine, there are lots of hoops that we have to jump through these days uh, to get up there, to travel internationally. And by the way, thanks uh, to so many of you for praying for us along these lines. Uh, we were worried that our COVID tests were not going to come back in time uh, within that 72-hour window. Uh, but late last night, they came through. And so we were praising the Lord and relieved. And they were negative, so that was good. Anyways, you have to pre-register on the app even before you get into Canada, and they ask you a ton of questions. And one of the questions they ask you is, what is the purpose of your trip? And you have to select from a long list. It's a big drop-down, and ours was something like discretionary travel to visit family or friends. And it was, it was phrased like that was the lamest of all excuses. Uh, but really, that's the greatest of all reasons. But, but anyway, I bring all that up to, to ask you to imagine that the Magi had to fill out a form before heading out on their trip. 
what do you think they would indicate as the purpose of their trip? What's the purpose of their travels? And look at the end of verse 2. They'd say, we're going to worship. There's a neat saying out there that you see stamped on uh, lots of different Christmas merch. And it goes something like this. Wise men still seek him. And I like that. I've always really liked that saying. But... Matt got me started on deconstructing Christmas, so um, he's created a bit of a monster here. I, I would only say about that that it doesn't quite go far enough, you know, because seeking only describes a means. The more interesting question is, what is the end? What is the goal? What is the purpose? I'm interested in the means, but I'm more interested in what is the purpose? What is the goal? In verse 2, the Magi clearly state the means. They're seeking the one who has been born king of the Jews. But more importantly, they're clear about their goal, their end, when they say, we have come to worship him. So the title of the sermon today is my slight correction on that pithy little saying. I want to say, Wise men still worship. Wise men still worship. The wise men, the magi, have a lot to teach us about worship. And in the time that we have remaining, I want to look at three things in particular. I want us to consider beacons to worship. Beacons to worship. Secondly, barriers to worship. And finally, we'll consider some behaviors in worship. Beacons to worship, barriers to worship, and then some behaviors in worship. Let's, um, let's look at that first point, and we'll start with the most basic question we could possibly ask, which is, what are magi? And the best way to think of them, I think, is like professors. Okay, they're highly educated men. That's why we call them wise men. And they take a particular interest in the study of the stars. In our day, we make a distinction between astronomy and astrology. And the difference there can be seen in the composition of those two different words. Okay, in both cases, the astro part means star. But in astronomy, the nami part comes from the word namas, which means law. Astronomy, then, is the study of the laws or the physics of stars. But logos, logos, means word. So astrology Astrology is a study on the words or the meanings of the stars. Okay, so you see the difference there. And that aligned, astrology aligned with the ancient belief that stars and their behaviors were actually communicating certain things. Uh, That's a belief, by the way, that persists down to the present day, which is why you can read your horoscope in the paper every day. 
So we rightly separate these two things, astronomy and astrology, but in the ancient world, these were unified. This was a unified discipline, and the magi were experts in these things. They were highly educated, they were highly respected, which is why, for example, they were able to so easily get an audience with the king as soon as they came to Jerusalem. And they were also obviously very wealthy, since they could fund such a long trip and since they could furnish such lavish gifts. So that's a little bit about magi. We're not exactly sure where these particular magi were from. The Bible simply says from the east, and that is east in reference to Jerusalem or Bethlehem. So it can be pretty much anywhere east of those places. It is reasonable, I think, to conclude that it was some distance east. This was not a short little trip that they took. You get the idea that these men traveled far, uh, and it took them a a long time to reach their destination. It's been speculated that they're from Persia or uh, Iraq in that general area, but honestly, it doesn't matter. The Bible is content to tell us that they came from the east. And they explain that when they were in the east, a certain star arose, and it was a star that piqued their interest. Uh, They were blown away by it. And it must have been quite a star to get their attention. These are professional star watchers, you know. So I think, um, here's an analogy. You think about the disciples in the boat that day when they were in the boat with Jesus and he was sleeping and a huge storm sprung up, and those disciples were scared. And you have to think, that must have been an incredibly dangerous storm, because these are fishermen. These guys are no stranger to storms. They've they've been out in lots of dangerous storms. So this one is particularly scary. This must have been a particularly amazing star, to get the attention of these magi. And lots of explanations have been attempted over the years as to what this star could have been, uh, whether it was an alignment of, of you know, two planets so that from the perspective of Earth it just looks like a really bright star. Um, there's people that say, you know, it, they look back and they say, well, in 6 BC, Jupiter and Saturn were aligned like that a few times during the year. Um, Some people think it was a supernova, whatever. There's lots of explanations. And those those natural kinds of explanations are, are interesting, but they can only take you so far. And what I mean by that is, you eventually have to account for verse 9. You eventually have to account for the fact that the star, this star rose again, and then led the, this crew from Jerusalem, and then came to rest on the house where Jesus was. And you're going to have a real hard time uh, coming up with a natural explanation for that sort of precision guidance. The inescapable conclusion, it seems to me, is that this star was divine. It had a divine explanation, not a natural one. It wasn't just a brilliant light. It was a beacon It was a 
homing device, so to speak. And if it's true, what I'm suggesting to you, that the star had a divine origin, then I think it's instructive to, to consider this phenomenon from the divine perspective. You know, oftentimes we consider it from our perspective as hu humans, but if you just indulge me for a minute and turn the perspective around so that you consider this from the divine perspective, a few minutes ago I mentioned that one of the I mentioned one of the deficiencies in the phrase, wise men still seek him. Another deficiency is that, it, that that is only one-sided. That's only a partial story. That, that is only a, a, a story up from the perspective of the Magi. But what if we were to consider this from the divine perspective? It was God who made this star appear to these men. So it seems to me that it's God who's doing the seeking. Yes, you're wise if you seek the Lord, but the Bible is also very clear to say that there is no one wise. There's no one with understanding. There's no one who seeks the Lord. If you ever come across a person who is genuinely seeking, then you're dealing with someone who has first been sought by God. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Consider this. For God to seek the wise men by way of a star means that He is speaking to them in their language. Maybe some of you kids are, uh, are into Pokemon. And maybe your kids... This is dangerous because I'm starting to speak about something that I have no understanding about whatsoever. But maybe, maybe some of your parents got you some Pokemon stuff for Christmas. I hope you realize how kind your parents must be. Your parents have had to learn all kinds of stuff about the Pokemon universe all the different regions and all the different characters and, and all the gyms. It's like a whole different language. And to be honest, it's, it's a whole universe that your parents are probably not overly thrilled with. Think of how kind that is for your parents to enter into the world that you find so amazing. In the same way, I want you to consider what love, what condescension it is for the Lord to seek out worshipers in these magi, to speak to them in their love language, which are stars, which we know from the Old Testament these, that you know, these guys are dabbling in stuff that the Lord is not overly thrilled with. In the minds of these men, certain stars signify certain things. And their textbooks say that this star is likely the one that signifies that a king has been born. And not just any king, but the king, a king of the Jews. It, 
the text gives no explanation for how it was that they came to this understanding. Um, although we can see from, from what the scribes and the chief priests said, um, this Old Testament belief no doubt had permeated far and wide and perhaps been corrupted um, to a point. But anyway, the Lord knows that, that this is going to communicate to these guys that exactly that, that a king has been born to the Jews. And so these wise men head westward to Israel, to the capital city in Jerusalem, to look for this king. They seek, what I'm trying to say is, they're seeking because he first sought them. And I want you to think about what this means. You know, first, angels appeared to shepherds, angels in the heavens appeared to shepherds in the field, and now a star in the heavens is appearing to these magi, to wise men. What kind of worshipers is the Lord seeking? Well, obviously, the Lord is seeking people who are lowly esteemed, and he's also seeking people who are highly esteemed. He's seeking the poor, and he's seeking the rich. He's seeking people who are both near, like in the fields outside of Bethlehem, and far, as in the Far East. The Lord is seeking both Jewish people and Gentiles. Do you, you see that the shepherds and the wise men cover the whole spectrum of humanity so that we can confidently conclude that God loves the world. And he is claiming for Christ the worship of every people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation and people from every station in life. Truly in Christ we have a Savior for all mankind. If, now, if you are a living, breathing human, human being, and I take it on faith that you are, although some of you look like you're struggling to do that today. But understand this, that you have been created to worship. And you will worship inevitably. You'll worship someone or something. That much is certain. But it is the grace of God to seek you out, even in the midst of your idolatry, and to draw you irresistibly you know, like a tractor beam to guide you as with a star to, to lead you to the only proper object for your worship, which is King Jesus. Not only do the Magi show us beacons for worship, but secondly, they also teach us something about the barriers to worship. The barriers to worship. So we could ask, what, what prevents people from worshiping Christ? Well, we find out pretty quickly, as soon as we follow the Magi into Jerusalem, we see, we see this in two different sets of characters. We see first in Herod, and then second in the chief priests and the scribes. The first barrier to the true worship of the king is what we might call self-worship or pride. 
This is modeled to us by King Herod. This is Herod the Great, as he was known, and he was installed by the Romans sort of as a, a puppet king uh, to rule in this region of their vast holdings. And given this territory, the Romans referred to him as King of the Jews. Herod proved himself to be capable of some pretty significant accomplishments, but all of these were obscured by the fact that he was absolutely ruthless. And when we meet him here at the end of his reign, uh, it's just getting worse and worse uh, with the passage of time. Herod brooked no rivals. And he was very paranoid in this respect. So much so that it led him to assassinate his wife and a whole host of his in-laws, three of his own sons, and hundreds, maybe thousands of his subjects. If we read further in the Gospels, we'll understand the degree of his ruthlessness and his paranoia to stamp out any possibility of a rival. Herod gets massively triggered when the Magi roll into town and ask, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Herod's like, what do you mean? I'm I'm the King of the Jews. I don't have any competitors for this title. Are there any competitors? Have you heard? Is there another king of the Jew? If there are, so help me. I will get rid of them. Herod, of course, makes a pretense of being interested in this, and he makes a pretense of wanting to know who this is so that he can join in the worship. But this is the furthest thing from the truth. This is the furthest thing from Herod's mind. He wants to know who this person is, who this other king is, so that he can destroy him, so he can stamp him out. And as it turns out, again, by divine revelation, the Magi never do return to tell Herod what they've discovered, which makes Herod then take like a carpet bomb approach. And this, rather, you know, rather than a surgical strike on one individual, th- this results in what has come to be known as the slaughter of the innocents, the annihilation of any male child who would fit in the general age range of this king of the Jews who was born. Now, we might not go to the same lengths as Herod, but my, by nature, we share his mindset. We, we may have been, as I um, suggested a few minutes ago, it, it's true that we've, we've been made and created to worship the Lord, but in our sin and in our rebellion, we, we turn inward and we become devoted to ourselves. We become the objects of our own worship. And we desperately desire to be the object of of other people's worship. And if you don't believe me, just rewind yesterday's tape or watch some home video of Christmas's past. And you'll see, you might even be embarrassed, you'll see that we are pathetically oriented towards ourselves. 
You might say, I'm not a self-worshipper. I don't even like myself. I've got bad self-esteem. But let me just encourage you to go deeper than just the presenting problem. Okay, your biggest problem is not that you don't love yourself enough, despite what lots of people will tell you. Your biggest problem is that you love yourself too much. And if your self-esteem is hurting, it's, it's probably because it can't bear the weight of the expectations that you have for yourself as the object of your worship. That, that's, that's a weight that no one can bear. We're not made to bear it. We're, we're made to, to worship a proper object, a, a proper person. And in your heart and in your mind and in your body, you know that that can't be true. But that doesn't stop you and me from wishing it was true. And it doesn't stop you and me from manipulating people and events to try to make it happen. In, in your pride, you may not be as murderous as Herod, but I'm betting that you covet and quarrel and fight Again, review the tape. I'm betting that you eliminate people from your life if they pose any kind of threat to your kingdom and your glory. I know that because that's what I do. That's what I in my flesh want to do. Now this is such a barrier because it's impossible to to worship the true king when we are contorted into the worship of ourselves. A second barrier to true worship and the true worship of Christ is what we might call unbelief. Of the two barriers that we um, are confronted with today, this may be the scariest because this is the kind of barrier that is exemplified by church folks, by the religious type. We see this uh, at work in the, in the chief priests and the scribes who a panicking Herod summons to find out more details about this other king. He assumes, and rightly so, that they would know something about this king of the Jews. Verses, look at verses 4 and 5. He inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And for me, this is, the, this is the part of the story that is most striking. And I remember it struck me even as a, a young kid. Do you notice how quickly and accurately the religious people answered that question? They didn't have to say to Herod, uh, Herod, that's a great question. Can we get back to you on that one? They didn't rush home to like flip through the relevant portion and Grudem. You know, they they knew the answer cold. This is 101 to them. This is basic stuff. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'm tempted to think that references to Christ in the Old Testament are are so hazy and so oblique that we, we honestly wonder like how much, if anything, did people back then know about the coming Messiah. It turns out 
references like Micah 5, which Matthew uses here, are not oblique at all. It turns out they're clearly perceived so that men are without excuse, if we could put it that way. You understand, don't you, that unbelief is not a head problem. It's not a lack of information problem. The chief priests and the scribes have all the information that they need. The problem is that they don't want to believe. They know the Messiah is to be born not many miles from where they currently stand, but they have zero interest in pursuing the possibility that the long-awaited Messiah might be there, might be here. They're so close, yet so far away. They've drawn near with their lips in their confession, but their hearts are far from them. And I say that this is scary, and I want you to understand the danger here, kids, children, young people, young adults, family members of believers, you who have heard the gospel too many times to count, you could provide all of the right answers if we were to play Bible trivia right now. I want you to be warned of the cold hearts of the Jewish religious leaders. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like they did, but believe and fall on your faces in worship before King Jesus. Let's, let's seek to understand what that might look like. Let's examine, examine thirdly and finally some behaviors in worship. Some behaviors in worship. The Magi stand as examples of what it looks like to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And we would do well, I think, to note some of uh, their worshipful behaviors flowing from their worshipful, worshipful hearts. And I want to point out just four of these in particular. And I'm only going to have time to touch on each of them. I trust that you'll um, meditate on these afterwards and, and with the Spirit's help, uh, consider what shape each of these might take um, in your heart and in your life. Um, you might even... Think of this or use this as fodder if you're interested in making some New Year's resolutions. I think there's uh, fruitful pastures to pursue here. Here's uh, four behaviors in worship that we learn from the Magi. The first behavior is rejoicing. Rejoicing. When the Magi see the star reappear and then come to rest over the house where Jesus was with his mother, Verse 10 says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Look at that phrase again. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That reminds me a little bit of a, a Christmas letter that I anticipate and receive every year from the Browns. And the Browns are friends of our family that uh, live in Canada. And Mrs. Brown writes a Christmas letter every year She's an older lady now, but she's still very excitable, very lively. And when she writes her annual Christmas letter, 
her joy comes through the pages, even if she's talking about her great-granddaughter's lost tooth. But it's hard not to enter into the joy because she's writing this, and when she gets to a particularly exciting point, she will use all caps, bold, and underline. It's really a, a wonder to behold. She, she doesn't want you to miss it. When Matthew writes that the Magi rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, you should read that as joy, all caps, bold, and underlined. It wasn't like, you know, my uh, uncle Kenny, uh, when, when we would give him a Christmas present, you know, it didn't matter what it was. He would open it up and he would look at it and he'd say, cool. That's the best you're getting out of him. Cool. That's not, that's not the reaction of the Magi to the baby Jesus. It's the far opposite extreme. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And I hope I haven't led you astray at all here today. When I say that you were made to worship... And when I point out that in our sinful nature we prefer to worship ourselves and that we're not inclined to belief, rather unbelief, I hope I'm not leaving you with the impression that worshiping Christ is going to be drudgery for you or it's simply going to just be a duty that you would rather not perform. You need to understand that when you worship Christ, you are returning to the very center of your purpose in life. This is why you've been made. Christ himself is the center. As Colossians chapter 1 says, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. So in the worship of this Christ, you have found the true center of the universe. And you've found at the same time the true center of your purpose. And therefore, the true center of your joy. Don't believe for a second that there can be joy found in worshiping any other person or thing. There's certainly no joy to be found in self-worship. I hope that you've discovered that by now. Do you get the impression that Herod was someone who was full of joy in his pride? On the contrary, the text makes very clear that he's, he's a guy who is constantly troubled. Why wouldn't you be if you thought that you were the king overall? If you're worshiping Christ like the Magi, your joy should be noticeable, should be palpable, it should be contagious. A second behavior is prostrating. Prostrating. Verse 11 says that when these wise men saw the child, they fell down and worshipped him. It's almost an instinctual acknowledgement of the supreme worth of this child. 
And by comparison, it's an acknowledgement of their own unworthiness. You know, falling down, prostrating yourself is an acted out parable of your humility where you believe yourself to be lower than the object that you are worshiping. So you actually like physically get as low as you can possibly get. And these wise men now are lower than a toddler. And rightly, rightfully so, because this toddler is King Jesus. And let me ask, does your worship, does your life express your profound humility in who you are compared to the surpassing worth of the Lord. Consider what prostrating yourself would look like for you. Consider how your humility might take shape in the year 2022. A third behavior in worship is offering. Offering. Do you know that our tradition of giving gifts at Christmas comes from the example of the wise men here in this passage? It probably should have come from the example of God who gave the greatest gift that ever could be given. But as I understand it, the tradition actually comes from the end of verse 11, where it says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And you know this as well as I do. Much has been made about the symbolism of these gifts, how gold represents Jesus' royalty and frankincense, uh, his divinity, and how myrrh represents his uh, humanity and his mortality. And there may indeed be something to all of that, but in my mind, this approach is, is a bit overplayed. This morning, I would simply have you consider the fact and the value of the gifts that are given. When, when you come to visit and pay homage to a king, you bring gifts. It's what you do. That king is worthy. Moreover, you bring the very best gifts, the most unique things that your region has to offer. If you, look, if you just trace gift-giving through Scripture, when kings or queens visit other royalty, they, they bring the best that their kingdom, that their region has to offer, because that other king is worthy of it. You spare no expense. The wise men understood this. Do you? Do I? Among many uh, churches in, in recent decades, there's a trend that, that moves the, the offering out of the order of service in a worship service. You know, they're there may be a box in the back or something, but because of all the negative connotations that people have with churches and with money and to avoid, avoid embarrassment, a lot of churches are taking um, this, this out of the worship service. They, they cease to take up a collection publicly. And th that's actually a terrible phrase, by the way, taking up a collection. That's a very crude way of uh, talking about what we're doing here. That's not what we're doing when we pass these plates. We're not simply collecting. Rather, we're giving you an opportunity to give an offering to the Lord as an act of worship. 
When, when you give to the Lord out of your substance, you're acknowledging in that act His Lordship. You're, you're prioritizing His priorities. You're seeking His kingdom first. It's a humble act. It's, a, it's, an, it's an act of obedience and homage. And I understand that in saying this, I am addressing an unbelievably generous congregation. You understand this and you practice this, and I give thanks to the Lord about that. But I don't want to neglect the opportunity to challenge you, and especially those of you who may need growth in this area. You like to give to the Lord, you want to give an offering, but when it comes down to it, often it's much harder to do than it is to desire. You, the, the money just runs out of your paycheck too fast before you, you can do it. And as a result, you rob the Lord and you rob yourself. Some of you need to resolve that in the new year, you're going to bring to the Lord a regular offering out of your first fruits as an act of worship. This is, this is an appropriate behavior in worship. But I hope you also understand that a proper offering is so much more than money. Romans chapter 1 compels us to offer our whole bodies as living sacrifices. That's, a, that's our reasonable worship, Paul says. It's this whole-bodied, whole-souled service to Christ. That's what we need to offer. And that leads us to a fourth and final behavior in worship, obedience. Obedience. Once again, the Magi are recipients of divine revelation. And we read that they're warned in a dream to avoid Herod. And so they return home on 86 rather than Interstate 90. This is, this is what you call obedience. And it's very simple. It's, it's so simple that you might think I'm even stretching the text to make a point. But I'm not. The Lord said something, they believed it, and they obeyed it. And that's exactly what obedience is. It's believing the Word of God and doing it. Putting it into practice. And this, this new year, let's resolve together that we're not going to be content just to do the first half. James reminds us that we are deceiving ourselves if we only hear and believe the Word. That's good, but it's, it's not enough to produce godliness. We need to do what God says. We need to obey. We need to put it into practice. Again, we need to carry this truth out in our lives as living sacrifices. And this is what constitutes true worship. Rejoicing, prostrating, offering, obeying. The Magi teach us these necessary behaviors in worship. This is what it looks like to, to truly worship King Jesus. And by God's grace, may we, all of us, be found on our faces before him. Because wise men still worship. Amen? Amen.